Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Think and Grow Rich. That is a famous title. And in fact, you've heard several interviews with the Napoleon Hill Foundation over the years on the show. Today's guest is Sharon Lecter, and she is the author of her latest book, Think and Grow Rich for Women. And in this interview, Sharon and I will discuss how you can use your power to create riches in your life. Sharon, hello and welcome to my show. Well, thank you, Corinne. I'm delighted to be with you. It's an honor. Well, thank you. It's an honor to have you. So first off, because some people, some women can have this and maybe I'm, maybe you've had different experiences, but women that I know, they kind of cringe when they talk about rich, right? So can we talk, can you give us clarity about what does rich mean? Absolutely, and I, it's a great question to start off with because I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the original book, Think of a Rich by Napoleon Hill, which came out in 1937. And he did talk a lot in the book about rich meaning money, money, money. And I think there is a difference between men and women because I think particularly women look at success not necessarily in the amount of money in the bank account but they also look at the significance that they're making in their lives, other people's lives. So the concept of rich is rich in life, and rich in life can be um, how you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror. Rich in spirit, rich in love, rich in gratitude, rich in generosity. So the concept of rich is not the amount of money necessarily that you have in the bank, but it's are you fulfilling and are you fulfilled in every aspect of your life, in your physical, your relationship, your community, your family, your as well as your financial life? So I think rich is really, for a woman, understanding that you are um, receiving um, fullness in your life by the fact that you are contributing in all of those aspects. And one point that I want to clarify, it doesn't mean that if you have, if you feel good about yourself or you feel grateful that you can't bring in an income that, um, can be nice to have, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I firmly believe that we live in a world of abundance, not in a world of scarcity. And I think if you can create the greatest, most successful businesses on earth, either do one or two things, solve a problem or serve a need. And women are great problem solvers. And then we have the opportunity and our maternal instincts help us solve problems and and serve needs. So it's never been a greater time in history for women to build a financial foundation around starting a business. Or if you're an employee, you can be entrepreneurial within your own position and caring and um, making a lot of money is the reward for making a lot of contribution to the society. And by making more money, it allows you to do more good. So, no, I definitely believe that um, 
you know, there there are those people, the old biblical saying, it's not, it's not um, money that's the source of all evil, it's the love of money. And so when you look at money first as your object, that's where you start getting a little skewed. But when money is the just rewards for you putting things together, that money is going to help you expand your good deeds and your good work. So it sounds like it's about the money being the byproduct, but not the not the beyond end all. Well, you certainly want to make sure that you have enough money <laughs> to be able to survive and, and, and certainly to thrive. So money needs to be part of the process. It's one of the five pillars that I talk about in your life. And it's, you know, money is very important for my friend of mine, Rita Davenport says you know, money may not be everything, but it ranks right up there next to oxygen. Because um, no matter what you do, you can be the president of your company, you can be the janitor, you can be an entrepreneur. We all have to deal with money. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not going to say money doesn't matter because it does. It matters a lot. The issue is, um, are you going after money solely to make money? Or are you going after money to improve your life so that you can also improve the lives of others? Oh, I love that. Um, and so, you know, it sounds like, when, do, do you find like when you're writing this book and, and talking with women that the money piece can be um, a barrier for some women? Well, money is a fearful subject for men and women. Um, but I think it's even more so for women. Than I, and I really take people back to the beginning, growing up. Um, for you and your listeners, do you remember your parents saying things like "money doesn't grow on trees"? Mm-hmm. Um, we we need to pay, pinch our pennies. We um, I can't afford it. We can't afford it. Every one of those statements is a negative statement related to money, and so those things get imprinted on our little souls when we're young. And when we get older, all of a sudden we have this scarcity mindset, and we don't know where it came from. We don't want it. We don't like it but we can't seem to get rid of it. And so when you start thinking about where it came from, it allows you to reveal the source and then acknowledge that, okay, this happened and I'm not going to allow it to impact. And um, we start talking about the subconscious mind, but those things are, are under the surface. And I know, you know, I often will refer to, um, you know, if you have a, a spouse or a partner, um, do you ever overreact? I know I do. I overreact to my husband and I go, where did that come from? <laughs> and it usually has nothing to do with what's happening at that moment or with him. If there's something inside of me that is, re- re- you know, raising its ugly head at, at the most inopportune time. So, but the issue is we all have those things in our lives. And if we can expose them and look at them, we can take the charge and the energy off of them and be able to start adopting that concept of um, having more and an abundance. I tell people, you know, just like little exercises, like catch yourself when you want to say, I can't afford it. And when your children, instead of saying we can't afford it, stop yourself and rephrase your comment and say, Johnny, or to yourself, okay, if I really want this, how can I afford it? Because when you say, I can't afford it, not only is it negative, but it's a, it's a statement of finality. And so it really is negative and depressing. But if you say, how can I afford it? You ignite your entrepreneurial spirit. You ignite the desire 
to figure out how you can get the money to pay for what you want. And that gives you a whole different frame of reference. And it also puts the cart behind the horse. Okay, I want this. Well, where am I going to go find the money to be able to buy it? And it gets us back into the age-old way we build self-confidence. Set a goal, achieve it, celebrate. So I want this new toy. Well, how am I going to? How am I going to afford it? Okay. Well, if I go out and I go to two new expos and I can, you know, get ten thousand dollars in new sales, then the profit from that will pay for this. Okay. Good. So I set a goal. Go earn the money, then go buy it. And so it really is how we build confidence in ourselves. And it's a wonderful way to teach confidence and independence in our children. I love that. I love that how can we afford it or how can I afford it and opening that brain versus, you know, what do you think? Shaming them, right? What do you think money grows on trees and shame leads to disconnection? So I love opening that mindset. Sharon, what were were the stories that you were told as a child about money? Well, you know, it's interesting because I didn't realize the impact they were having me at the time, just as I just shared that. But my parents, um, I grew up in a very lower middle class home. My father was career Navy, and then he um, retired from the Navy when I was eight, and she went to work for Mark Marietta in Florida, so we moved down to Florida when I was eight. And my parents worked their tails off, and they were very entrepreneurial. Even though he had a full-time job, he also invested in real estate. He had a used car lot. My mother had her own beauty shop, and they were always working. And my work ethic comes from living in that kind of home. And um, the, so the stories I heard about money was my parents were, um, were, were frugal but not cheap. Mm -hmm. If my dad wanted something, he would figure out a way to pay for it, but he would have the money before he would buy it. You know, we didn't, my parents didn't believe in debt. And so I grew up with the concept of debt is bad and and something that um, I've actually trained myself to say, well, some debt is good. If I can, you know, if I can use this debt to buy an asset that's going to generate revenue that pays the debt and more, that's good debt. But it's those concepts that I learned that I didn't even realize imprinted on me until I'd gotten my college degree and I started at Cooper's and Librand accounting firm and I was on a fast track career, which we thought was the goal my parents wanted for me and I thought for myself. And then I realized that, um, you know, the climbing the corporate ladder was not what I wanted to do with my life. I said, if I'm going to work this hard, I'm going to build my own corporate letter. <laughs> and so, you know, at the ripe old age of 26, when we know everything, right, um, I, you know, I chose, made the uh, huge decision to walk away from public accounting and start my entrepreneurial career. So when you went first to that corporate job, was it in this pursuit of, oh, it's going to be a better life, I'm going to make more money, was that what you were pursuing when you first went into the corporate job? Um, it was when I well, it was the thing to do to go get a good education and could get a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, that was 
just what everybody wanted. We wanted to get a good education and get a good job, and that's what school teaches you to do, go get a good job. Um, we, you know, Back then, there was absolutely no entrepreneurial training in, in school. Entrepreneurialism was kind of like, well, what you would have to, you were forced to do if you couldn't get a job. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was very, very much I was following the, the, the plan that, and an, an achiever or an overachiever like myself would do to become successful in life. And certainly in my world, I chose accounting because for me, numbers tell a story. And I wanted to know how to read that the numbers so I could see the financial world in front of me. Interesting. And so was it once you were finally, I call it behind the curtain, right? Once you saw what was going on back there, that's when you had the, the eye opener of, you know what, if I'm going to work this hard, I'm going to go build my own corporate ladder. And it sounds like maybe to be more in line with your own values versus maybe a corporate's, corporation's values. Yes. And of course, I went back into the corporate world a couple of times um, as we all, you know, we all have multiple careers during our life. But I... Um, it's probably the fact that I'm a control freak. Who knows? But, you know, I like to have the freedom to control my own life and to control my own income and to control my own hours. Um, and so in, in doing, I still work as hard as I ever did. Um, but for me, I know that I'm working to, to build a foundation for my family and for my future. So um, I know that I'm not accountable to a boss or to a government. I'm accountable to myself in reaching goals that I create for my business. And that alone is an unusual thing for women because women tend to want to be accountable to other people. And so that's something that women need to focus on and understand that we are each, every one of us, in the driver's seat of our own life. We are all the CEOs of our own lives. And we are the ones that need to determine what we want to create in our life. And we are the ones that have our foot on the accelerator. We have our hands on the steering wheel. And so many of us tend to give up those controls to other people. And then we can't figure out why we're not happy. And so that's something that is very important. Whether And you can do that as an employee as well as being a business owner because you are in control of what you're doing and how you're operating within that position. So let's talk about your subconscious. How did you, what, what was going on in your subconscious that gave you that um, belief that you're in the driver's seat, that you want to have the freedom to control your own life and not need the permission or somebody else to say, okay, you can do this? Well, I'll tell you what really happened to me at that ripe age of 26, which <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, I remember sitting on my bed in my apartment in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had the old yellow legal pad, and I had my pros and cons. Pros are to leave the position and go with this uh, company, or cons, I should stay where I am, and um, continue on a fast-track career that I had in public accounting. And both columns were probably equal in length. And so I was more frustrated than when I had begun because I still couldn't figure out um, whether I should go or stay. 
and literally my hand kind of just took over and wrote across the top of the pad, why not? And so that that question, why not, has become my personal motto. Why not do something different? Why not take the road less traveled? Why not give yourself the opportunity to create something? And so many of us want to find our why, and our why related to our passion is one thing. But when we wait and ask why when it comes to taking action in our life, we're waiting for an out external force to give us an answer. And when we ask why not, that is what ignites that in that entrepreneurial spirit, or it ignites the motivation. Why not try something different? And of course, if the answer is it's illegal, that's a good reason why not. But otherwise, why not try something different? Why not have a new experience? Um, and really, that has become my philosophy. And I think it's really inherently um, shared by most entrepreneurs out there because they're out there carving new pathways. And what about that F word fear? Did that come up? Oh, absolutely. Fear does one of two things. It paralyzes us or motivates us, fight or flight. And when we get paralyzed, most of us have that reaction to fear. And we tend to hide away and, and close in, close down on ourselves. And we want to change that paralysis into motivation because the other word that I talk about is courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting in spite of the fear. And so allow your fear to kick you into that why not. For me, there was fear about going out and doing something completely radical. But that fear was channeled into why not create a new experience? Why not try something different? You can always come back to what you already know. So Sharon, I was talking to some people recently and I was talking about this idea about fear, right? And fear sometimes can ignite us. But what happens is, and I wonder if this is your experience, we're in that fear place, but it can go into that lizard brain that you talk about in your book. But then if we can get move over to more of this well-being, like what it sounds like you're doing when you go into, you have the fear, but then when you step into courage and this why not, it's not necessarily rooted in fear anymore. It's more rooted in possibilities. It's rooted in um, in yourself, in your confidence in, I don't know how this is going to come forward and, and roll out, but I'm going to listen to this. Tell me where, how does that sound for you? Oh, absolutely. I had a friend, and she's in the book, actually, under the um, subconscious chapter. Um, it is, her name is Donna Root, and she... I share my analogy about being in the car, being in the driver's seat, and mm-hmm. you've got your hand on the steering wheel and your foot on the accelerator. Well, when you're fearful, you you're, you just park the car and you sit there and you're not moving. <laughs> and 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 she gave me an exercise. You know, okay, let's use your your analogy, Sharon, because that's your comfort zone. That's where you are. She says when you are in this fear, this element of fear, or when you are in one of your guilt or worry storms actually take the issue 
over which you're fearful. Take the issue over which you're feeling guilty or worry about and sit it in the passenger seat and look at it and say, what is it that I'm supposed to learn from you? What is it that I'm going to do with you? And look at it as an external force that's crippling you at that moment. And then open the passenger door and kick it out. Learn the lesson and keep going. <laughs> and, I mean, it really it's a great visual to put yourself through. But then I, I couple that with, um, and, and fear falls into this category as well. Um, there was a definition of worry that impacted me six or seven years ago, and it really has helped me really change my life in a very positive way. And that is to worry is to pray for what you do not want. I love that. I highlighted that. That is just, yes, loved it. It really is very impactful for me because what happens now when I get into this element of fear or I get into worry or guilt, I can stop myself and say, okay, right now I'm really focusing on what I don't want. I'm, I'm praying for what I don't want. Stop it. And I go, okay, wait, instead of focusing on what I don't want, I'm going to purposely, demonstratively change my thought process to what I do want. And it really does work when you can give yourself these these little patterns to catch yourself and say, okay, I'm going to put it in the passenger seat learn from it and kick it out, or I'm going to stop myself and say, okay, I'm focusing on the outcome I don't want. Let's repurpose this and start focusing on what I do want. And all of a sudden, you'll see yourself, instead of attracting the negative, you're attracting the positive. So let's talk about that. Let's focus on what I do want and we're attracting the positive. How does this work? Well, I let me just... Uh, um, Again, answer with another story. Um, as I'm talking to you, and I'm, you're going to open the door into the funeral of a child. Okay. Immediately, you feel yourself depressed. Okay. You already feel the negativity in the room, and you feel your energy sink with them. Well, let's back up and say, you know, I took you to the wrong place. I'm going to take you down the street. You're going to open the door and you're walking into a dance hall with the Supremes. I'm showing my age, but Motown music playing. Everybody's dancing and having a good time. You immediately can feel yourself lighter, lifting up. You probably have a smile on your face thinking of the Supremes. Um, And that same reaction happens not just with your physical place, but what, where your brain is, where are you putting your mental space? And if your mental space is thinking of negative things, it's going to impact your physical being. If you can get your mental capacity to change to think of positive space, it will impact you in a positive physical way. Isn't that because of what it does to our brain? Absolutely. It starts getting the dopamine going and the serotonin, and so it helps us create hormones and release hormones that give us a general sense of well-being. Yeah. So yeah. So it's it's so important to um, 
manage our thoughts and notice. So when we're walking into that funeral, we could go into that sadness or we can go into that love of, of that person and the great memories we had, right? Right. And what you can do is train yourself so that when you walk in, you are walking in as a salve for those people in the room that are in desperation. And so instead of you being brought down to their level, you walk in with your own confidence and your own compassion and help bring them up to yours. So Sharon, excuse my ignorance, but maybe my listeners will um, appreciate this question. What is a salve? A fab. Oh, a fab. Yes. When I when I do my B fab, is that what no, you're no, referring the, to? No, no. You just said something about when you walk into the room, you will act as a salve. A salve, salve, like a like a, a lotion. Salve. S- yeah. I don't even know how to spell it. S a u v e. Salve. Okay. Like like less medicine. Uh, like when you have a burn, you put a salve on it to oh, make okay. it feel better. Okay. And so you're walking in and you're going to walk in and you're going to be the person that helps lift up those that are in such a sad state. Okay. Um, and so that's a way that you can help shift the energy in the room and there can still be love and respect for the person that's gone, but not this, um, this, pain, this so much this pain, correct? Right. So women in particular have great empathy Mm -hmm. and we have great compassion, Mm -hmm. but we need to train our empathy and train our compassion because with that great, and I I can, I'm speaking from tremendous experience here. I have tremendous empathy and tremendous compassion. And for most of my life, I would walk into a room and if somebody was angry or somebody was really, really sad, I would feel myself taking on their sadness. And and really holding on to it and owning it for myself. And that's the worst thing that I can do with my empathy and my compassion. I need to take my empathy and compassion in and feel their pain, but not own it, not internalize it, but utilize my compassion and my empathy to give them some of my energy without releasing it allowing them to use my energy to bring themselves up instead of me sinking to their level. So what I just thought of when you were speaking was, while somebody may not be feeling well, we don't want to go, we don't help them by joining in on their pity party. We help them by giving them love. We help them by um, being in a positive, more of a positive influence than coming in and joining them and wallowing. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And something else I want to bring up, because I don't want the listeners to think, oh, well, then we just always need to be positive. Because what you said earlier with your story about take the fear and put it in the driver's seat or in the passenger seat and then say, what can I learn from this? So that those negative emotions can still be messengers, but we just don't have to keep them in our bag and keep them dragging us down. We can learn from them and then let go of them. Right. And... A further car analogy. Um, <laughs> you're you're in the driver's seat. You've got the um, steering wheel in your hands. You've got a huge windshield, and that's so that you can determine where you want to go, what direction. You've got the accelerator. You have the choice to go in any direction you want. 
but your rearview mirror is very small, and that's intentional because it's only there to help you remember what you need to learn from the past, not to carry the past with you like a sack of potatoes. And women are really good at this. We are so good at carrying all our past issues and our problems like like brands on our back. And we, we need to stop doing that. We need to say, okay, what is it that I'm supposed to learn from that colossal mistake? And, and, and let me add the story to this. When I left public accounting and I went to this company, it was the worst business decision of my life. But I'm so happy I did. It was not a good thing for me from a business perspective. I only stayed there nine months. However, I met Michael Lecter, my husband of 34 years. Um, and so the worst business decision of my life became the best life decision of my life. Now, did I learn something about my decision to go there? Yes, I did. I learned that I needed to do a little bit more due diligence when I made decisions to go into operating companies. But I will never regret that I went there because I found my life partner. Wow. And I appreciate you talking about that because so often I think people think, oh, if I just leap and I go do something else, it's now I'm ha- living happily ever after, which professionally wasn't your case. But on your journey, you were able to meet a fantastic life partner. And that just shows that life's just not all black and white, doesn't it? Oh, and and in most cases, even the most tragic things that happen to us, um, you know, a divorce. When you look back a few years, it's not as painful as it was when you were going through it. Um, when you might, uh, people that have declared bankruptcy who come roaring back with a new opportunity, going through bankruptcy was the worst thing on earth for them. And yet it taught them so many things that they now are much more astute with their money. And so we, Napoleon Hill himself said every adversity, every mistake, every failure creates the seed of an equal or greater benefit. The question is, will you find the seed and get the benefit? And is that question, will you find the seed? Is that mean, are you willing to look at what you can learn from it? Or are yes. you gonna? Or are you going to take that and say, "Oh, I'm a victim of my circumstances." Boo-hoo for me. Well, let me answer that in two different ways. One is I always I I try not to use the word failure except when I'm quoting Hill. Uh, I look at failures as learning opportunities mm-hmm. um, because failure is an adjective, and nobody is a failure. We all have issues in which we do not succeed, which are learning opportunities, but nobody is a failure um, in my perspective. But also when, when, when you look at life experiences, imagine a piece of paper with a line drawn through the middle of it. A lot of people like to lay blame and justify and feel shame, guilt. Those are all below that line. Those are all feelings that generate negativity. Lay blame, justify, you know, so somebody else's fault, I'm a victim. Above the line become things like responsible. 
okay, I put myself in this position. It didn't work out. He was a jerk. She was, you know what, but I'm the reason I'm here and I am accountable. So responsibility and accountability come above the line. So when you find yourself in this negative mire, ask yourself, am I playing below or above the line right now? And when you can get yourself above the line, you'll learn the lesson and you'll keep moving in a positive direction. I love that. So I want to go back to the subconscious mind and how it's the connecting link um, for the listeners to, to understand this a little bit more. Can you share with them why our subconscious mind is so important in creating the results that we want in our life? Well, many of you may have heard of this, this analogy, but they talk about the subconscious mind like an iceberg. The tip of the iceberg, we've heard that phrase. Mm-hmm. An iceberg, you may see... And it may look huge if you're on a cruise ship and you see an iceberg, but anywhere from 80 to 95% of the iceberg is underwater, below the surface. So what you're seeing is a really small piece. And so in our own lives, and our, sub, our subconscious is huge, and there's so much, it, it, it is the filing cabinet of everything that's ever happened to you in your life. But your memory and your conscious mind is only retaining a small piece of that. And so when you're out there living your life and, um, you know, somebody says something to you, you know, maybe they say, you know, that was a stupid mistake. All of a sudden, your, your conscious mind feels like, oh, gosh, I'm a failure. But your subconscious is now going back throughout your filing system and saying, yep, you are, because here are all the other times you failed. And all of a sudden, your instant of feeling that should just come and go becomes a huge issue to you. And it's something that each and every one of us have dealt with in our lives. And we need to understand that that trigger does happen. And so we need to consciously Think about what we're feeding to our subconscious mind. In the book, we have an entire chapter on auto-suggestion. And I will tell you, for a lot of my career, I thought that was all just woo-woo. <laughs> um, you know, I really did. You know, I was much more, I'm the straight-A student. You know, I need the facts. You know, all that woo-woo stuff is crazy. But <laughs> in my, as I approached the, you know, last, later chapters of my career, um, it really is so true. It's what do you, what are you feeding your mind? Um, I stopped listening to the news about two years ago, except for very short periods, just to see what's happening in the economic world. But I used to have the news on all the time. And I was just like barraging my brain with all the negative stuff that was going on. And I, it made a, a noticeable difference for me to pay attention to what I was feeding my brain. Because even when it's in the background, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on, but that stuff was coming into my brain. And so it's so important for each and every one of us. What are you feeding your subconscious? Are you feeding positive things or negative things? And there's a couple of very quick exercises you can do when you, before you go to sleep at night, instead of worrying about things that happened that day, 
force yourself every night before you go to sleep to say, okay, I am grateful and come up with five things that you're grateful for that happened to you that day. And think of the positive things you're going to do the next day. When first thing out of the bed, take a very deep breath, get oxygen in your in your body, take some, drink some water, hydrate, hydrate your brain, and then say, okay, I am going to accomplish A, B, and C today. Again, start your day with positive things and end your day with positive things. And it will allow your brain and your subconscious to be focusing on positive issues instead of negative issues while you sleep. Can I read a passage from your book, Think and Grow Rich for Women? Please. So this is about the subconscious mind. And it said, the subconscious mind will draw on what is stored and what it has experienced in previous situations. What we have believed is real in our lives to create in our three-dimensional reality. If you have a desire that differs from what you believe, you will always bring into reality what you believe, not what you desire. And that's why you're talking about what you feed your mind is so important because you may intellectually want something, but if you believe it's not possible for you, it's going to be very difficult to attain that. Isn't that right? Exactly. Exactly. And um, I've also seen it kind of almost in the inverse where somebody has, they want, um, they want the huge house or the Maserati or the Lamborghini and they go get it. And in their subconscious, um, their belief system is that they, that they, um, that that's frivolous. There, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because they're going to not feel genuine or real in it. Um, particularly if they've gone into debt to get it, that's going to absolutely um, anchor that feeling. And so it's really important that we make sure what our belief system is. And, and so for me, I would never buy a Lamborghini. I would never buy. That's not who I am. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that somebody else can't go get it and do and believe in it and be thrilled and 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 earn it. Um, can I go buy one? Yes, I can. But sh- seeing Sharon Lecter in a Lamborghini is not consistent. It's not consistent with the Sharon Lecter inner being. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm much more comfortable in my SUV driving to my ranch. So, you know, again, we and then we get into that fear element. And one of the strongest fears is the fear of criticism. And so a lot of us make decisions out of a place of fear, fear, I need to get that Lamborghini, because if not, people are going to think I don't have the money. And if I get it, then I can show I have money. And so they do something and they take actions that are not consistent with who they really are. And that just breeds additional discontent. So when they're rooted in fear, they're not living in line with their values. But when you're rooted in your values and knowing who you are, you're going to make decisions that are sustainable and that work for your life. Is that what you're saying? Beautifully put. Couldn't say it better. So I have a question for you, Sharon. Um, How did Napoleon's Hills book, Thinking Grow Rich, affect your life? I read Think and Grow for the first time when I was 19. Wow. And, I, and I'm now 60, so it's been a few years ago. And I've probably read it more than 100 times in my lifetime. I never really 
understood the impact that it had on my way of thinking until I was probably in my 30s. Um, but it is the quintessential work on success in the world because it's not one man's philosophy. The product of Think and Grow Rich was a lifelong research project by Napoleon Hill where he interviewed over 500 of the most successful people of his time, all men because the titans of business were men, and thousands of people who considered themselves failures. And so he synthesized all this information to come down to the 13 steps of, to success. And that is why Think and Grow Rich is such a powerful tool. And it's as powerful today as it was then. And for many years, I resisted writing a book for women because I said the steps of success were the same. I made it. You know, a lot of women are successful. Um, And as I enter the twilight of my career and certainly what I've seen happening in the world of business the last several years, it truly is, even though the steps to success are the same for men and women, we approach them very differently. We have different skill sets on how we approach those steps. And that's what I did with Think and Grow Rich for Women. I start every chapter. The chapter outline is the same as the original Think and Grow Rich book. And I highlight successful women who have utilized each of those principles. I have over 300 women in the book. And then I talk about how I've utilized each principle in my personal career. And I end each chapter with what I call the Sisterhood Mastermind, which are quotes from women, women of history, successful women today that are women in media, women in um, the arts, women in corporate America, and women around the globe. And then at the end of each chapter, I turn it back to the reader and I have an ask yourself section. And it's like, how have you applied this principle in your life? Has it been a positive experience? And here are one or two, three things that you can employ in your life today or this week or next month to heighten the application of this step to success in your own life so that the book itself is a sharing. It's lots of stories. Women share their their mistakes, their learning opportunities, and their successes so that when you read the book, you can find someone who you totally relate to. One story you might say, this is (laughs) unrealistic for me. But the next story is like looking in a mirror. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of it. The book, my goal is to change the dialogue from women having chips on their shoulder, from negativity about the lack of women in the workforce, to one of a celebration of women, a celebration of the accomplishments that have been made. And by changing the dialogue from complaining and criticizing to one of celebration, I think we will see more progress more quickly. Oh, I love that. You know, um, so the Think and Grow Rich was written in the during the Depression, wasn't it? That's correct. Oh. It was credited by many for helping us get out of the Depression. Um, and many of today's most successful businesses were created by people who read Think and Grow Rich. And, and I do appreciate that you wrote Think and Grow Rich for women because um, sometimes people will stop when it comes to terminology, right? Because Napoleon Hill read it. There's a very masculine feel for the book. Or some people who uh, may not respect the past as much will say, well, that was a different time. But what you were able to do was create a language that is is what we're used to right now and then identifying the audience with women 
and then showcasing stories of women because the power of story is so powerful. Um, and so I think it's great. And, you know, for people to the other side about the book that I really enjoy is are those questions at the end um, where you can sit down and practice, right? Because it's not just about gathering information. It is about being deliberate in how you practice this information that you give or Napoleon Hill gave, correct? Oh, absolutely. And the power, you know, we all know is the power of repetition. Mm -hmm. Um, They say it takes three months to learn a new habit. Well, for me, it's probably closer to two years. But, you know, it is is creating that repetition and repetition through reading, repetition through auto-suggestion, repetition through physical exercise, um, repetition for good work ethic and good work habits. Um, It's just, it is just a fact that we, you know, the more we repeat something, the more we are going to internalize it and use it. Um, I've already, I mean, the book's only been out a month and I have a gal saying I'm reading it for the fourth time. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So again, it is, and it's a beautiful tool. Thank you very much for for women to do work together and go through it together as a, as a book study or as a mastermind group. And what I really love about it is, I, I also added, there's one chapter in the book, Thinking Rich for Women, that was not in the original book. And I want to make sure I have the opportunity to speak about it. It's called One Big Life. One of the things that drives me nuts is this, this false expectation that women put on themselves seeking and striving for work-life balance. Um, I don't believe there is balance. I mean, I don't believe... Neither do balanced, I. Yeah, when you're balanced, you're not moving. And I don't know a single woman who isn't moving. We're moving way too fast. And so when we think of in the term of work-life balance, we are never satisfied. We're constantly feeling guilty and worried about it. And I want to say in the world we live in today, we have one life. Our only finite resource is time. And if you're not happy with how you spent your time yesterday, maybe you spent too much time at work and not enough with your kids, or maybe the inverse, you spent too much time with the kids and you spent enough time on your work, then change it today. Mm-hmm. But don't carry what happened yesterday into today and let it impact what's happening today. Just stand up in the morning and say, you know what, today I'm going to shift my time so that I can feel better about how I spent my time today when I asked myself that question tomorrow. So the whole goal is to replace work-life balance with living one big life. Well, I love that because, you know, I mean, you said it takes you about two years to learn something. I call myself a slow learner. It's not a reflection on my intelligence, but it takes me a lot of deliberate practice to really understand and live that life, right, um, that I want. But just like you said earlier, it's not about carrying around that sack of potatoes of what happened yesterday or two years ago or 40 years ago. It's about how do I want to practice my life right now? That's what you're saying. Exactly. What was the biggest lesson that took you the longest to learn, Sharon? (laughs) One of the things in the book that I talk about um, is a lack of self-confidence and um, I wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki. Mm-hmm. We were partners for 10 years. We built the company together, wrote 15 books together. Um, but I made a, a choice to stay um, in the shadows and not really be in the limelight a lot. And 
I did that um, because I felt it was, you know, the, the greatest way to build the company. And we were very, very successful. So, But in that process, I, I learned something about myself. I learned that I was um, not standing in my own power. And that's why the subtitle of the book is Using Your Power to Create Success and Significance. I was giving up my power um, for the for the for the team, and it was something. And then in the later years of our of our partnership, it was no longer the the vision and mission of the company um, was no longer in unison with my personal mission. Robert wanted to take the business into franchising. It was not a good model for the franchisees. I didn't believe in it. And so I, I, when I made that decision to leave the company, we were at the height of our success. But it was finally me standing in my power saying, this is not congruent with who I am and what I want. And I need to step aside and get out of it. And so I tell particularly women, there are times in your life when you need to close the door so that other doors of opportunity can open for you. And so it was when I made that decision to leave the company, it's later, two months later, I got the call from President Bush asking me to be on his advisory council. I served President Bush and President Obama. I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity had I still been at the Rich Dad organization. And even more importantly for me is I got the phone call from the Napoleon Hill Foundation when they found out that I had left Roosted, they asked me to help reinvigorate the, the, the messages of Napoleon Hill because of the financial crisis that we had in 07 and 08. And so with that, I had the opportunity, Think of Rich for Women is my third book. I wrote Three Feet from Gold mm-hmm. and Outwitting the Devil. And now Think and Grow Rich for Women. So I, again, would not have had that opportunity had I not stood in my power and said, this is not right for me. And so each and every one of you on the call, what is it in your life that may be holding you back? Are you standing in your power? Do you need to close a door so that other doors of opportunity will open for you? (sighs) That's beautiful. We don't need to say any (laughs) more. That is a great question to end on. Sharon, Thank you so much for being a guest today. It's been just a fabulous pleasure to talk with you. It has been my honor and pleasure, and I thank you so much for the opportunity. That was Sharon Lecter, and she is the author of several books. Her latest is Think and Grow Rich for Women, Using Your Power to Create Success and Significance. And I want to talk about this idea of when Sharon and I were talking about fear and about courage, right? She said that courage is acting in spite of fear. And how we go, what I have found and what I work with my clients on is how we go about getting beyond that fear of doing it anyways, is you may be in that fear and you feel what that fear is. You hear what that message is trying to tell you. And then you get in a place of well-being. You fill up yourself so that when you take action, you can take action from a place of love or self-love or worthiness. Because think about it. When you take action from that place of fear, what happens? What are the results in your life? And I really invite you to think about that in your own life. 
I know when I've taken action from that fear place of I'm just going to do it. Sometimes what I do is even though I'm coming from one of my uh, strengths, right? But what happens is that that fear dials up that strength into excess because our strengths can become our weaknesses. So that's why it's really important when we um, are struggling with something that we can get ourselves where we're grounded and we can use our strength. So what are the things that are important to you? Like when I'm in place of fear and I may be spinning, you know, maybe it's connections are usually a really important thing, connecting with my husband or with friends, right? One of the things that Brene Brown talks about is when you feel shame, feel it, know what those physical sensations are, and then check in with that. Ask yourself, is it really true? These stories that are going through your head, or maybe that somebody's accused you of. And then reach out to someone who's earned the right to hear your story and share with them. And maybe they can give you perspective or help you get grounded, right? So for me, that relationship bucket is a really important one to help me get more grounded in my place of well-being so that from there I can take action. Even though I may be afraid, at least I can go into that courage thing and I'm rooted more in courage than in fear. The fear may started the ignition. It may have sent me a message, but being rooted in that courage place or that self-love place is going to help me flourish and thrive. And isn't that what we really want? We want to get into the place that things don't stop us, right? So often when I'm interviewing guests, they've all had crappy things that they've gone through in circumstances. But the difference is, is that they move past it. And how they do that is this process that I was talking to you about. Breaking it down. What is the message that this fear is trying to tell you? right? Sharon had a great um, question to ask yourself. Okay, why not? Why not do this? Why not take this risk? Why not go do this? Right? Asking yourself, why not? And then that way you're shifting your brain. So instead of bringing that lizard brain, where it's that reptilian fight, flight, or flee, now you can use your whole brain and you can create that awareness and figure it out, right? So when I get in a state of panic, one of the things that I can also do besides connecting with others, is to remind myself the truth. I am resourceful. I will figure it out, right? And what sometimes what I need to do for that is find evidence in my life where, okay, maybe I was in a difficult situation and how did I get through that and go, those are, that's the evidence that I created and how can I move forward? Because sometimes we get into that fearful situation and just like I'd mentioned earlier, we believe that um, that emotion, that feeling is a prediction. Oh no, I'm feeling fearful. That means the worst is going to happen and I'm going to be destitute, right? And we get into there. And when we're in that fear place, it can trigger worry. And like Sharon said, to worry is to pray for what you do not want. And instead, I invite you to think about what it is that you want. How can you step into your resourcefulness? to truly create the life that you want, the situation that you want. And maybe it's not going to happen right now because did you remember what she said in the, towards the end of the interview? Most people, a habit takes about 30 days. For her, it takes about two years. One of the things that I'm always talking about is that I'm a slow learner. And it's not that that's any reflection of my intelligence 
or of even of my connotative style, like with my interview with Kathy Colby many years ago, I'm very high on a quick start. I'm a number nine out of 10. But to really learn and master something, it takes me time. And once I gave myself that permission for that space to practice, that's when things really changed. When I thought it should be happening sooner than it did, that was actually a very toxic belief. So embrace it, practice it, and ask yourself, why not? Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.